1999, Kelly Lane contacted an adoption agency to ask about placing her newborn with a family. As much as she wanted to raise the child, she knew she was not in the position to do so. But the information Kelly provided to the agency about herself and the baby's father didn't add up. The lies began unraveling and led, unexpectedly, to a missing persons investigation. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to Crimelines. This week's case is one that I have wanted to cover for a long time. This was on my list back when I was making my old podcast, and it just kept getting pushed down the list. So I've wanted to cover it for, I would say, four or five years. Larissa brought it back up to me in August of last year as a suggestion, so I do want to thank her for that. I think that is what pushed me into getting this on the schedule. It still took me a while, but I did it. And I really think I put it off because it's overwhelming with the amount of information and the amount of contradictory information out there. But we are going to do the best we can. This will be a two-parter. Like I said, there is a lot of information. Part two will be up shortly after this one, within a day or so. If you are subscribed through the Apple subscription program or you are a supporter on Patreon, everyone else, I am sorry, you will have to wait a week for part two. If you are a person who likes to just binge the two parts back to back, I suggest just pausing this one and coming back next week when the second part is out. I do want to give a disclaimer that this is a kid case, and though it is not graphic, I did want to give that heads up. If you're the type that skips any case involving a child, I understand, and I will see you back in a couple of weeks. The main sources for this episode are court documents, the Sydney Morning Herald, and a book called Nice Girl by Rachel Jane Chin. All sources are linked in the show notes. It is hard to know where to start with this case because starting at the beginning like I usually do isn't the easiest way to understand how this case developed. Usually it is, but in this case, it's not. We're going to start instead in May of 1999. 24-year-old Kelly Lane showed up at Ride Hospital just outside of Sydney. She was very pregnant, ready to deliver. Kelly told them at intake that she was supposed to give birth in Brisbane, and that's where she received her prenatal care. But she was in Sydney staying with friends while the baby's father and her parents were out of the country. So Kelly arrived alone at the hospital, and on May 31st, 1999, she gave birth to a baby boy we will call AJ. That is how he is referred to in the court documents. There is a publication ban on several names in this case. They are mostly children, so I wouldn't have named them anyway. The day after AJ was born, Kelly called Anglicare Adoption Services from the hospital and told them that she wanted to place AJ for adoption. She was living in London at the time, where she did receive counseling that helped her come to this decision. 
but as an Australian, she had traveled to Sydney for the purposes of having the baby placed with an Australian family. Because Kelly had not set up any of the details of the adoption ahead of time, she had to first sign a foster care agreement so that AJ could be placed in a foster home while all the adoption paperwork was completed. Kelly said that AJ's father was her ex-boyfriend, Duncan, who also lived in the UK. Kelly said Duncan was aware of her plans to place the baby for adoption, and he supported it, but he did not want to be involved in any of the details. Kelly also told the adoption agency that she didn't intend to stay in Australia for long. She was set to start a new job in the UK in mid-June, which gave just around two weeks for her to finalize her side of this adoption. But she said she might be able to extend her time in Australia by an additional two weeks if it was necessary. Because Kelly was not taking the baby home with her, she was discharged from the hospital as soon as she wanted, while AJ stayed. On June 3rd, four-day-old AJ was placed with a foster family pending the adoption, and the supervising caseworker was a woman named Virginia Fung. Virginia set out to get the information needed from Kelly to process this adoption. Kelly gave her an address for Duncan in London, and she also gave an address for where she was staying while she was in Australia. Neither of these addresses turned out to be valid, and neither were some of the phone numbers Kelly gave as ways to reach various people. Kelly did have a cell phone, and that number was correct, but when she would not answer Virginia's calls repeatedly, Virginia moved down the contact list only to find out that the next number listed didn't go to the person named. It was actually the number for a mortgage company. This was a problem because Kelly would go stretches being out of touch with Virginia, which made settling the adoption on Kelly's timeline completely impossible. When Virginia finally reached Kelly, Kelly said she had not been available because she was busy trying to make arrangements to get back to the UK. Something odd about Kelly not answering Virginia's phone calls, though, was that she would return them, but only after hours when she would get the answering service. Or, instead of calling a response, she would fax it over. She seemed to be purposely avoiding getting on the phone with Virginia. Virginia wondered if Kelly was out of touch and not connecting with her because she was stalling the adoption. Adoption is a serious decision, and Kelly would not be the first parent who felt forced by circumstance into making a decision she didn't actually want. Virginia needed to make sure that Kelly really did want to move forward, and regardless of that decision, Virginia wanted to help Kelly move forward, whether it was adoption or not. Also, there was a new timeline introduced, and it was not Kelly's return to the UK. The end of the month was coming up, and AJ's foster care agreement was set to expire. That would leave AJ in 
legal limbo. So Virginia talked to Kelly, and she insisted she did want the adoption to happen, and she said she would come the next day with her identification so that she could sign the papers. But then Kelly didn't show. She instead faxed Virginia a message saying that she had a visa issue for returning to the UK and had to go to Canberra, the capital, to figure it out. Without Kelly's signature, not only could the adoption not go forward, but the foster care agreement ended. The case was then referred to the state as AJ was technically abandoned, legally at least. Kelly had been in sporadic contact, and she even visited AJ in the foster home over that first month. But without this paperwork signed, the state had to intervene. The state assigned a child protection caseworker named John Barovnik to the case to make sure everything could keep going, legally speaking, even if Kelly was not fully participating in the process. So now we have two people working on AJ's adoption. Virginia was still trying to track down AJ's birth father, Duncan, and do that side of things. The information Kelly gave on how to contact him was false, but Kelly had mentioned that Duncan played rugby in Manly, which is a suburb of Sydney, before he went overseas. So Virginia got creative. She sent him a letter through the Manly Rugby Club, hoping someone there would forward it on to him. The letter informed him of AJ's birth and asked him to call the adoption agency. The letter did make its way to Duncan, and to say that he was shocked would be putting it mildly. After he processed what he had read, he called Virginia. Duncan explained that he had dated Kelly, but they had broken up well over a year prior to AJ's birth. The baby just could not be his, and he had no idea why Kelly said otherwise. Virginia also spoke with the social worker, John, and he told her that he had trouble verifying some of Kelly's story as well. He spoke with the hospital and found out that AJ was not Kelly's first baby, like she had told the adoption agency. She had another baby in 1995 or 1996. Both years had shown up on paperwork, so he knew they had to sort that out. He also learned Kelly never traveled from London to Sydney to have the baby. It appeared she had actually lived in New South Wales the entire time in a suburb of Sydney. Virginia, however, had already suspected this. She managed to find where Kelly's parents lived, as well as Kelly's place of work. She was working at the Ravenswood Girls' School, where she was a full-time athletics coach. Virginia decided to show up at the school to speak to Kelly face-to-face when she, again, couldn't get in touch with her. Kelly was surprised to see Virginia just show up on campus, but took her to a quiet place where they could speak privately. Virginia knew Kelly had told several lies at this point, but she focused on the ones that would impact AJ's adoption. The baby was starting to bond with his foster parents, and for his sake, they needed to get him some stability. Virginia told Kelly she knew that Duncan wasn't the father, and Kelly admitted that she lied about that. 
AJ's father was actually a man named Aaron, who she had a brief relationship with in London. She said she had no way of contacting him, but did tell Virginia where Aaron worked, which, surprise, when Virginia later looked into this, she found out that no one by that name worked there. But Kelly did sign an affidavit that Aaron was the father. Virginia also asked Kelly again about any other children she had. Kelly repeated that AJ was her first baby, even though the social worker had told Virginia that there was another child. So Virginia knew this wasn't true, but it didn't really change anything with AJ's adoption directly. It was enough, however, that Virginia suggested Kelly get a psychological exam before they moved forward. This was voluntary, but if Kelly didn't do it, the state would intervene again. Kelly would then lose any control over this process, and she wouldn't get a say in choosing AJ's adoptive parents. Kelly agreed to the exam and followed through with it. This allowed AJ's adoption to move forward. Kelly visited him one last time in foster care, where she was observed to be very loving, caring, and understandably emotional. In the meantime, John, the social worker, was still working behind the scenes to figure out what was going on here. Even if everything was working out with AJ, there was a baby Kelly had that seemingly didn't exist. And then John made a realization with the paperwork. It wasn't that Kelly had a baby in 1995 or 1996. She actually had had babies in both years. AJ wasn't her second baby, he was her third. With this issue cleared up, John was able to find some adoption paperwork, and that was for baby number one, called TR in the legal filings. But he couldn't find anything for the second baby. John called Kelly directly in October 1999 and asked her about the previous two babies. Kelly denied she had a second baby in 1996, but she did confirm the 1995 adoption. John asked her if she was sure she didn't have a baby in 1996 because he had the record from Auburn Hospital saying that she had a baby girl named Tegan Lane in September of that year. Kelly again denied it. John told her, He knew she was lying, and he would have no choice but to call the police if Kelly couldn't provide information on Tegan's whereabouts. Kelly did not provide any useful information on that call, but two days after the conversation, Kelly sent John a fax asking him not to talk to anyone about the baby without telling her first. She also wrote that she would speak with Virginia and sort it all out. A few days after this fax, Kelly sent a longer fax to Virginia. Kelly admitted she was not entirely honest because she was focused on making sure AJ was placed in a good home. She admitted that there were two babies born before him and that she was disowned by her family in part because she placed her children for adoption. While the older child, TR, had been placed through an agency, 
Kelly said the middle one, Tegan, had been given to a couple who lived in Perth who had supported her during her pregnancy. She said she hadn't been in contact with them in a long time. She actually didn't really know them at all because she had met them while she was pregnant. She didn't have much she could provide that would help find this couple. In spite of Kelly's insistence in this fax that she was finally being truthful, this actually included more lies. For one thing, her family hadn't disowned her. Even at 24 years old, Kelly was still living with her parents at that moment. They also didn't disown her due to the previous adoptions because they never even knew she was pregnant, which, trust me, we are going to get into. And lastly, Tegan was not with a family in Perth. With Kelly being unable to provide an actual location for Tegan Lane, or the information necessary for John to find her, he called the police on November 4th, 1999, and reported it. And that phone call was the start of the slow unraveling of a long string of lies. Not only was much of Kelly Lane's story about AJ made up, so was her story about Tegan. And not only that, Kelly had hidden what she was going through from everyone around her. She had secretly given birth to three children without her parents, who she lived with, and her boyfriend, who she slept with, ever finding out. So now, let's back up and tell this story from the beginning, and then we'll get into the investigation into the whereabouts of Tegan Lane. Kelly Lane was born in March 1975 in Sydney. She grew up in the suburbs of Sydney, right on the line of Fairlight and Manly. Her father was both a police officer and a rugby coach. Kelly has been described as a golden child, succeeding in everything she tried and being an overall happy kid who had a lot of friends. This is a coastal area, so Kelly grew up on the beach, and with a rugby coach father, the family was always active and athletic. Kelly gravitated towards water sports and eventually water polo. She did really well in the sports since she was a strong swimmer. Kelly played for her school team as a teen, and Kelly's priorities in life seemed to be water polo, friends, and then school. Not to say she was a bad student by any means, it just wasn't where her primary interests were. Really, the only crack people saw from the outside in this golden child persona was that Kelly liked to party. I know partying as a teen isn't really the most shocking thing I've ever heard of, but Based on how often people mentioned it when they were talking about Kelly, it sounds like it was outside of the expected or the norm for the situation. But it wasn't to the level that it really impacted Kelly's performance as a water polo player. 
on the school or club level. She was at the top and good enough that she would make elite squads and even the national team. That said, once she was there, she was pretty solidly middle of the pack. So when I say she made the national team, I mean she made the junior team, not the senior team. But she trained hard, and in 1993, it was announced that Sydney was hosting the 2000 Olympics. Women's water polo was not an Olympic sport yet, but there was an expectation that it would be by 2000. Like a lot of young players, Kelly did dream it was her future if she worked hard enough and focused. She certainly didn't want to be sidetracked. In May of 1994, the then 18-year-old Kelly had a brief relationship with a man shortly after she broke up with her high school boyfriend. After it ended, Kelly was dating another man named Duncan. He's the rugby player we've already discussed. During the brief rebound relationship between her high school boyfriend and Duncan, Kelly got pregnant. It's not clear when Kelly realized she was pregnant before or after she started seeing Duncan. Kelly decided to tell no one about her pregnancy. When I say no one, I mean absolutely no one. Kelly completely hid it from her friends and family, and it turned out it wasn't the first time. Kelly had gotten pregnant twice prior to this, and both times she terminated the pregnancies. One was with the support of her high school boyfriend, who was the only one who knew, and the second, she didn't even tell him. She went through the procedure completely alone. I hope I have built enough trust with my audience here that you know I'm not bringing up Kelly Lane's reproductive decision-making for no reason. It is relevant, and we will get back to it towards the end of part two. So she hid two pregnancies that she terminated, and then we know she hid this pregnancy and two more. That's five pregnancies. The hiding of these pregnancies shows to me that Kelly was not only not ready to parent children. Obviously, a baby would impact her Olympic dreams, but if that's all it was, she could have reached out for support through whatever decision she made. Instead, she hid it, and what that says to me is that Kelly attached shame to getting pregnant young, and she wanted to hide it from the people whose judgments she feared, which would be her family and her teammates. To hide it from them meant she had to hide it from everyone, even friends she would have otherwise trusted with the information who could have been there for her. Unlike the first two pregnancies, Kelly didn't have to just hide the pregnancy with TR for a few weeks. She had the pregnancy for nine months. She carried the baby to term. And this couldn't have been easy. She lived with her parents. She had sex with her boyfriend, and she was training for water polo, meaning she wore a skin-tight swimsuit five to six days a week. Her teammates would later say that Kelly would wear her towel or her warm-up tracksuit pretty much right up to the edge of the pool and then quickly take it off and get in the water. 
there were apparently rumors going around the water polo team at various points that Kelly might be pregnant, but no one confronted her about the rumors. Everyone seemed to think that if Kelly was pregnant, it would eventually come out because there would be a baby or she would take time off postpartum. But that never happened. Kelly would just show back up, kind of slimmed down, and people assumed she must have just put on some weight. On March 18, 1995, Kelly competed in a water polo match in Balmain, and she performed well. Afterward, she went with her teammates back to the hotel where they celebrated, and then Kelly excused herself. She went to the Balmain Hospital alone, and she was in labor. She told the hospital that she was from Perth, where she planned to have the baby, and had been in Sydney for a few weeks at that point. She even gave the name of a Perth doctor who she saw for prenatal care, which obviously was a lie. She even gave a fake address for where she said she lived. The hospital transferred her to a larger hospital where she delivered a baby girl all alone on March 19th. It was just a few days before her 20th birthday. Kelly still wanted to keep this secret, so she asked how to place the baby for adoption. She then proceeded to give the adoption agency a full biography about her life in Perth that was almost entirely false. After Kelly was discharged from the hospital and TR was placed into care, Kelly remained in contact with the caseworker to make sure the adoption went through smoothly though there were some bumpy points in the process. On April 3rd, when TR was a few weeks old, Kelly filled out an affidavit claiming her boyfriend Duncan was the father and that he consented to the adoption. At the time, the law did not require the father to sign over his rights himself. However, the adoption agency had a policy that the father be involved in the process, if at all possible. The caseworker tried to reach Duncan with the number Kelly gave for him. The person said it was a wrong number and that Duncan didn't live there. Kelly told the caseworker that that must have been Duncan's roommate lying to avoid him having to talk to her. So then the caseworker tried to write him a letter at the address Kelly provided, but she got no reply. The worker then found the phone number and the address given had no connection to each other. Kelly then gave a few reasons why Duncan wasn't involved over the next few weeks. In late April, Kelly said that she and Duncan actually broke up over this. He was feeling tricked by Kelly, who told him he didn't need to be involved. She said he agreed to the adoption, but he didn't want to be a part of the process, and she had promised not to make him be, yet it seemed like he was getting pulled into it. She said he was in Scotland playing rugby and couldn't get back to Australia to speak with them himself anyway. They were never able to reach Duncan, and Kelly swore in an affidavit weeks later that Duncan said he didn't want any involvement in anything, not the adoption process or raising the child. This allowed the adoption to move forward, and TR was placed with a family. Kelly was still contacted about TR and given the opportunity to visit the baby a few times and to meet the adoptive parents. Sometimes Kelly would fall out of contact, but it was because she was training and then competing at nationals. 
After nationals that year, Kelly was offered a spot on the junior national team to compete in Canada, where the team won silver. She also continued her education, first pursuing an arts degree at the University of Newcastle, before she switched to physical education. Kelly didn't seem to miss a beat as she secretly worked through the adoption process in the background. It's not just the paperwork and the visits, but also the emotional toll it was taking. Kelly managed to keep it quiet and to deal with it herself. Then in December 1995, nine months after TR was born, Kelly became pregnant again. She was still in a relationship with Duncan, but Kelly would later say he was not the father, which would turn out to be a central issue in this case, and we'll get into it later. Like with her previous pregnancies, Kelly kept this one a secret from everyone. Not only was she still living with her parents at the time, she spent a few nights a week at Duncan's house, so she had two households she was hiding this from. In August 1996, Kelly got a job teaching and coaching at a girls' school. She was about eight months pregnant, and no one knew. The following month, Kelly went to Ride Hospital four times about her pregnancy, and this appears to be the only prenatal care she received. Kelly wasn't just seeking care, though. She was asking to be induced. She claimed, once again, that she lived in Perth, but was in Sydney temporarily while trying to relocate to the UK, which is where her partner already lived. She did give an address in Sydney where she was staying. On the third visit to Ride Hospital, she gave them the name of a Sydney-area home birth midwife who she said she was seeing for the pregnancy and turned out to be Duncan's mother. Duncan's mother was a registered nurse, and at the time, she was training to become a midwife but she wasn't currently practicing as a midwife, and she never saw Kelly in that role. Like everyone else, she didn't even know she was pregnant. All four times Kelly showed up at Ride Hospital, they monitored her and sent her home. At around 4 p.m. on September 11th, 1996, 21-year-old Kelly Lane showed up at a different hospital, Auburn Hospital, saying that she was ready to deliver, but she was not in active labor. The false information she gave was more or less the same as what she gave Ride Hospital, including naming Duncan as the father and his mother as her home birth midwife, who had referred her to the hospital. Kelly told them that she was two weeks overdue and having back pain. They treated her pain and sent her home since Kelly said she was seeing a home birth midwife and she wasn't currently in labor. The next day, Kelly went back into the hospital and asked straight out to be induced. A nurse tried to call the midwife Kelly named to get prenatal care info and test results from blood work, but no one answered the number Kelly gave and there was no answering service. Now, we know I'm an expert in very few things, but birth is actually one of the things I have a lot of personal experience with, including with home birth midwives. And I can tell you, this is not normal. Midwives are on call 24-7, and there is always a way to reach them or to reach the person covering for them on the rare chance they took a night off. 
even the nurses at Auburn Hospital thought it was odd that Kelly's midwife just left her client without support. They had experienced what I experienced. Midwives tend to be very protective of the mothers in their care. But Kelly showed up and said she was two weeks overdue, which is a bit of a tipping point in a pregnancy as far as risk goes. So they decided to go ahead with the induction. Kelly delivered this baby, like the first one, without any support aside from what the labor nurses gave her. When the baby was born, she appeared to be more like 38 weeks gestation, not 42 weeks like Kelly claimed. But she was healthy, and 38 weeks is full term. It's the low end of full term, but still, it's not like they induced a premature birth. Kelly named the baby Tegan. Kelly did suffer some more blood loss than is normal, but she was quickly stabilized. Other than that, the labor and delivery went smoothly. Kelly made no comments about adoption, and she even breastfed Tegan at the hospital. A social worker was sent to speak with her since Kelly was alone the whole time. It looked truly like she had no support. No one came to visit her. No one even called to check in. Kelly said to the social worker that Tegan's father did want to be there, but because Kelly had gone two weeks overdue, he was overseas playing rugby at the time. She said her family lived in Perth, but that they had arranged for a woman to stay with Kelly until her parents and her boyfriend could get to Sydney to be with her. And all of that was untrue. Duncan and her parents were all less than an hour away on the other side of town, unaware of what was happening. The social worker's notes indicated that Kelly seemed happy and Tegan was nursing well. There were no obvious concerns. Kelly did seem eager to leave the hospital as soon as she could, and the nurse told her there were a few things they needed to do before discharge. Kelly had a bunch of paperwork to fill out for Medicare and the birth certificate. Tegan needed her heel prick that they do on all newborns to test for a variety of conditions. And Tegan also needed one final exam from the pediatrician. On September 14th, when Tegan was two days old, the doctor came through and cleared Tegan for release. And the next thing the nurses knew... Kelly and Tegan had left the hospital. It was around midday. The only form Kelly had filled out at the hospital was the Medicare form. The hospital had pushed her to fill that out ASAP, but she took the birth registration paperwork with her and never did the identification check required to even process it. I asked an Australian listener named Chris about this, and she said that she was surprised to hear they processed the Medicare enrollment without a corresponding registered birth. This case may have gotten moved sooner had that issue, that discrepancy, been picked up on at the time. After Kelly and Tegan left the hospital, the nurse wrote up the notes on the birth and the baby. She then called Ride Hospital, which was near the address Kelly gave as the place she was staying. 
She arranged for the hospital midwife from Ride to do a postpartum home visit to check on Kelly and Tegan and to make sure the tests that Kelly had skipped out on were run. And that is the last record of Tegan Lane that has ever been found. After leaving the hospital, Kelly showed up at her parents' house around 3 p.m., and she was alone. She went inside and got ready for a wedding that she planned to attend with Duncan. Duncan met her at her parents' house, and then her mother drove them to the wedding. Two days after this, Kelly called Ride Hospital and had them cancel her home visit. She said her own midwife, who referred her to the hospital for the induction, would be handling her postpartum care and Tegan's tests. But that home birth midwife never contacted Auburn Hospital, which you would expect her to do. She never asked about the birth, how it went, got notes from the nurses on what still needed to be done. Nothing. On September 19th, Tegan was added to Kelly's Medicare card based on that paperwork she had filled out in the hospital. And then Kelly appeared to move on with her life. In 1997, she again failed to make the senior team in water polo, which was incredibly disappointing since the Olympics were only a few years away. She was attending the Australian College of Physical Education at the time, and she asked for an 18-month leave so she could focus on training to hopefully make the 2000 Olympic team. During this time, Duncan and Kelly broke up. It was around March 1998, and they had been together around three and a half years. They broke up because Duncan had met someone else. Kelly really just focused on water polo, but then in February of 1999, Kelly didn't make the national team, so the 2000 Olympics were just not going to happen for her. She decided to get back to school and focus on her job coaching at Ravenswood. Kelly was dating, and around August 1999, Kelly became pregnant again. She may not have known she was pregnant for a while, though, because in February, she flew to a clinic in Brisbane for an abortion. She knew she was in her second trimester at that point, and it was one of the only places that would terminate that far along. But when they examined her, they determined Kelly was actually farther along than she thought, or at least farther along than she told them. Since the pregnancy was past the point of viability, they canceled the procedure. So in May, Kelly went to Ride Hospital at nine months pregnant with her third baby. When they entered her into the system on intake, Tegan's birth came up since she had visited the hospital while pregnant and their midwife was supposed to do the postpartum care. Kelly said that Tegan was with her in Sydney and that friends were watching her. She also told them that she had gotten prenatal care at the Royal Women's Hospital in Brisbane. Kelly was not in labor when she first showed up, so they sent her home. A week later, she called and said that she was now in active labor, and she arrived at Ride and gave birth to AJ. In the week between the two times Kelly presented at the hospital, Ride had reached out to Royal Women's to get Kelly's medical information, and they said, They had no record of Kelly Lane seeing any of the doctors there. 
But of course, when she shows up in labor, they're just going to treat her regardless of if they have her paperwork or not. After AJ was born and Kelly contacted the adoption agency, she chose a different agency than she used with TR. And this is what brought Virginia Fung into her life and then John Barovnik, who uncovered the missing Tegan Lane. It was six months after AJ's birth that the police were contacted. Tegan would have been three years old. But it took a few years before this report was even taken seriously. The answer as to why isn't any one thing. It was a few factors that put Tegan Lane's whereabouts on the back burner. For one thing, it was entered into the system as an incident with a memo indicating that they needed to speak with Kelly. It was not entered as a missing child, which would have triggered an immediate response. The incident was also sent to the Manly Police Station and assigned to someone who knew Kelly's father in his professional role as a police officer. Kelly's father was not an officer at this point, but the detective, Detective Kehoe, knew Kelly was a nice girl from a nice family, and it seemed like this was probably a miscommunication or a misunderstanding that just needed to be cleared up. Certainly, this couldn't have been anything nefarious. But probably the biggest issue, the biggest contributing factor to this, was that the Manly police were dealing with a major internal investigation into corruption, which would eventually lead to the firing and arrests of multiple people. Detective Kehoe was not part of that scandal. But when there is a breakdown in a station with leadership, investigations don't always have the oversight and the direction they need. There was no one looking at this and pushing anyone to look into it more. And honestly, due to the conflict of interest, because the investigator knew the family, it should have been reassigned to someone else who did not know Kelly's father or to a different station entirely. But that was not done, and so the case just sort of sat there with little movement. Detective Kehoe did some things. He did some quick checks on the information he had, like calling the home birth midwife named on the paperwork. This was Duncan's mother, and she knew nothing about it. She wasn't even a practicing midwife when Tegan was born. Kehoe also spoke with Duncan, who was the father listed, and he also didn't know anything. Then Detective Kehoe contacted Medicare, wanting them to run Tegan's name to see if she got any medical care and where she accessed that care. Now, they wouldn't do that without a court order. There are privacy issues at play. But instead of getting that order, Kehoe just sort of dropped it. By the time Kehoe reached out to talk to Kelly, a year and a half had passed since the social worker had called it in. And Kehoe hadn't spoken to everyone from around Tegan's birth or even around AJ's birth, so he also didn't know about all the various stories Kelly had told. This first interview with Kelly occurred in February 2001. Kelly was 25 years old and seven months pregnant. This pregnancy, unlike the others, was not a secret. 
though she wasn't married, Kelly did live with her partner, and they intended to raise the baby. Kelly was asked by Detective Kehoe about the circumstances of Tegan's adoption. And Kelly then changed her story. Instead of this family in Perth she initially claimed Tegan went to, she said Tegan was actually being raised by her father. Her father was not Duncan, but rather a man named Andrew Morris. Their relationship happened as a result of cheating on both sides since Kelly was with Duncan and Andrew was in a relationship with a woman named Mel. Kelly explained that she wasn't ready for a baby, still being in school and all, but Andrew was older, he had a good job, and his partner Mel was open to raising the child as her own. While Kelly was in the hospital, she said that Andrew, Mel, and Andrew's mother all came one time to visit her and figure out what they needed to take Tegan home. Things like getting the car seat installed. This visit was not witnessed by anyone at the hospital as it was actually noted that no one came to see Kelly. But according to Kelly, when she and Tegan were discharged, Andrew showed up to pick them up. He then drove Kelly to her parents' house where he dropped her off and he continued on with Tegan. Kelly said she saw Tegan a few times over the next few months, but after early 1997, she didn't hear or see Andrew, Mel, or Tegan again. She didn't know where they currently lived. Kelly was able to give a description of Andrew and said he was born in July or August of 1966. He lived in Balmain, which is a Sydney suburb, about half an hour from Kelly's home in the Manly area. Kehoe asked why Tegan was on Kelly's Medicare card when Kelly didn't plan to be part of her life. Kelly said it was just that all the paperwork that she was given in the hospital was all together, and she thought she might as well sign it in the event she ever had a visit with Tegan and Tegan needed to go see the doctor. She didn't plan to be part of Tegan's life, but just in case. And that was about all that came from that first interview. The records show that three months after this interview, there was a search for birth certificates issued for Tegan Lane, and none came back. Meanwhile, that corruption investigation into the Manly Station that I talked about really came to a head. Even those who didn't do anything wrong, like Detective Kehoe, found themselves transferred out and new people were brought in. None of the outgoing officers alerted the incoming ones to the investigation into Tegan's disappearance. At this point, it seems they were still viewing this as a custody or paperwork issue and it remained an open investigation. In April 2002, over a year after Kelly's initial interview, the case was assigned to a Detective Constable Richard Gott. Detective Gott did not know Kelly Lane's father and came into this with a more neutral view. He didn't have an impression of Kelly or the family one way or the other. And in looking at the file, Detective Gott figured it was a matter of finding the father and then sorting out how to deal with the birth certificate issue and the adoption or custody paperwork or whatever. He tried himself to find a record of Tegan somewhere, but he couldn't. So he arranged to speak to Kelly in October 
2002 to get more information to aid the search. Tegan would have been six years old. Gott did not record this interview because he didn't think Kelly was a suspect in anything other than sloppy paperwork based on what was in the file. He explained to Kelly that he needed to figure out where Tegan was, and Kelly said again that she gave Tegan to Tegan's father. And she said his name was Andrew Norris. And that certainly changed things because Detective Gott and Detective Kehoe before him had been looking for an Andrew Morris, not Norris. Thinking he may have misunderstood the initial interview, Detective Gott excused himself to go into another room to rewatch it. And he listened as Kelly clearly said Morris in February 2001. So Detective Gott went back into the room and asked Kelly if she had told Kehoe that the father was Andrew Morris, and Kelly denied it. She said that she told him it was Norris, even though Gott had the tape to prove she said Morris. But maybe she misspoke or she was misremembering, except that wasn't the only inconsistency. Kelly told Gott that Andrew, Mel, and Andrew's mother showed up at the hospital and took Tegan with them while Kelly took a cab home. In her first story, Kelly said that Andrew dropped her off at her house. When asked about this discrepancy, Kelly said the first story was a lie and that she had said it because it is what she wished had happened. Having Andrew pick up the baby and leave her at the hospital without so much as a way to get home made it sound like he didn't care about her at all. She wanted to make the situation sound more loving than it was. So Detective Gott moved on with questions he thought would help him find out where Tegan was living. He asked if Kelly knew anyone who knew Andrew or Mel and might be able to give them more information. Kelly said she had a different friend group back then, but that she did have a friend from college, Lisa, who knew Andrew and knew that Kelly had a short fling with him. But she didn't have Lisa's contact info anymore. They had lost touch over the years. So Detective Gott made a note of Lisa's full name to follow up on later. Kelly also gave a description of Andrew, said that he was tan with bleach blonde hair at the time and that he worked in finance. She also thought he may have graduated from Sydney University. The day after the second interview, Kelly called the detective and told him she was going to the house she lived in at the time Tegan was born to see if she could find any old boxes that might have a phone book or a planner and then she could get the names and numbers of friends she had back then, friends who may know about Andrew. The address she gave for this house was Duncan's old address. The house was, at the time, owned by his brother, who was then renting it out. Though Kelly didn't technically live there with Duncan at any point, she did stay there frequently, so it wasn't a stretch to consider both her parents' house, and Duncan's house as where she was living. Kelly said she would call back with whatever she found, but after he didn't hear from Kelly for three weeks, Detective Gott called her on November 7th to find out if she had any more names or contacts for him. 
Kelly said she didn't find anything useful, but she would be going to the house in two days to check for her old planners, and she agreed to call him back just a few days after that and didn't follow through. Detective Gott tried to reach Kelly a number of times before he finally got her back on the phone on November 22nd. Kelly said she couldn't talk right then, but she'd call back in 20 minutes. And then she didn't call. So in early December, Detective Gott went out to the address that Kelly had given him. Three women were renting the house at the time, and two of them were home when he got there. Both of them said that no one came by the house asking to look through old boxes at any point. It was about this time that God had a pretty good idea of all the various stories Kelly had been giving over the years to the hospital employees and the two adoption agencies. So not only were the investigators not getting cooperation from Kelly in trying to find Tegan, they kept running into lies and contradictions. Now, her fake backstories in regards to TR and AJ didn't really matter, since the authorities knew both children were placed in adoptive homes. But Tegan, that's where the issue was. First, Kelly told the hospital that Tegan was in Sydney with her when she gave birth to AJ. Then she denied Tegan even existed to the adoption case manager and the social worker. Then she admitted Tegan was born, but that she was in Perth with a mysterious couple that Kelly barely knew. Then she said Tegan was actually with her father, Andrew Morris, and then his name changed to Andrew Norris. What these stories told the police was that Kelly either didn't know where Tegan was and was making up lies to cover up for not knowing, or she did know, and she was purposely trying to hide it. So to give you an idea of where the investigation was headed, on January 3rd, 2003, they brought a cadaver dog out to Duncan's old house to search for Tegan's remains. They found nothing, but this gives us a peek into the investigation turning from a paperwork issue into a possible homicide. And that is where we are going to leave off this week. Next week, we will cover the investigation and the Crown's attempts to get this case in front of a jury. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. Crimelines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for.